May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer them from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. That is Psalm 20, which along with Psalm 21 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, January the 15th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. The, um, the one who is addressed in that psalm, by the way, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. This would have been an enthronement psalm. It would have been a psalm for the king. And it, the, when the king was enthroned, and that happened on Rosh Hashanah, what would happen is, is that they would then um, pray these prayers for the king, that, the, that, that he would rule wisely, and that he would rule under the rulership of God, and that he would be a faithful man. So we're continuing our look today in the Messianic, song, uh, messianic writings in um, the prophecy of Isaiah, wrapping up the uh, epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, and in Mark's gospel, uh, chapter 2, verse 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. So we're continuing to look at these messianic prophecies and how Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies in every way. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. And they were created and formed in two different ways, really. They were created and formed at, at the beginning, in creation. So they were created and formed, and those are the two verbs that are used in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 for the creation of man. They were We were formed with his hands from the dust of the earth, but we were created as well. And so in the case of Israel, though, the nation itself was created and formed at Mount Sinai after the events of the, um, the Exodus. So we see the, the, um, the fulfillment of the Passover, and then they're brought out, and then the nation accepts his kingship in the covenant at Sinai. And so he, they've been created and formed as individuals, but then they've been created and formed as a nation as well. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. And that's exactly what happens in Passover. They were redeemed at the cost of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. So they were redeemed, and, and God is declaring that I have already done this thing. I have redeemed you, and I'm redeeming you again out of Babylon. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And, and that was established again at Sinai. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Does it sound like the Red Sea? Sound like the Jordan? And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flames shall not consume you. That sounds like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. <clears throat> For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, other kingdoms, in exchange for you. You're more important to me than all these other nations. 
because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. What a declaration God makes there of his love for his people. You're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. It's after all the other things that God has said through the prophets about them. He's called them essentially whores. He has has said, you've gone astray, you've gone after your lovers, you've whored yourself after other gods. And now he says, you're precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. I give everything. Nothing matters to me, and nobody matters to me like you matter to me. Fear not, for I am with you. So I have redeemed you, and I am with you. And so when he redeemed them out of Egypt, he brought them into the wilderness to himself, and then his presence was among them visibly in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And so he's declaring, now I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Those who are exiled and spread abroad, I will bring back. And he says these same things through all the prophets. He says these same things through Hosea. He says it through Jeremiah and others, that he will bring them back. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. So he's calling his people from the four corners of the earth, those who are in the Jewish diaspora all over the world, he's saying, I'm going to bring them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Again, we go back to that idea of being created, formed, and made. And these are the ones that were created for his glory. And so he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel at this point. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and all the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it's true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I've chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. So they can, I'm encouraging these other nations to come and bear witness about the things that they know. Let's hear it. Let's hear what you have to say about the former things. Let's hear what you have to say about creation. And God can question them in the same way that he questioned Job. Were you there when I did all these things? Do you understand all these things about how creation works? If so, well then, go ahead and declare that. But here God says, yeah, bring them. Let all those other peoples bring the wisdom of their gods, and and let's, let's see who knows something here. But you... Are my witnesses, you. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. In other words, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, and there was nothing before me, and I can testify to that. Everything else was created. No matter what it claims, and no matter what you might believe about it, it's less than. <clears throat> I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. And henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back. He's making a claim to be in the God of gods, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And everything else is subservient to him. It may not be so today, but ultimately all this redemption work 
will be complete. And when it is, he will judge those things in heaven and on earth, and he'll lock those things that are in rebellion against him away forever. And they will no longer trouble us. He, he is declaring here more than what we typically believe is the work of the, the servant. The servant comes to, to not only redeem people, but to redeem them from false gods, those demonic entities that, that claim to be gods, that are not properly gods compared to him because he was before they were, and everything that is takes its being from him. They're not able to create. They came into being. He never did. And so he's, he's laying claim to a cosmic sort of a, a, a redemption that we're still waiting for. But he came to expose those gods as no gods at all, and that's the reason that he goes to the Samaritans, or the first people that he goes to that are non-Jews, and he, because they are part of the lost sheep of Israel. And he goes to them, and he declares to them that you're worshiping, worshiping a false god, and I've come to give you new hope and fresh insight. And so he goes to them, but then he also goes and he speaks to the Syrophoenician woman. He goes to the country of the Gerasenes. He goes to Caesarea Philippi. He goes to these places where these other gods are being worshipped. In Caesarea Philippi, he stands before these niches where there would have been shrines to these other gods, and he says, who am I? Who do men say that I am, and who do you say that I am, in light of what you're looking at behind me, this, this huge shrine to all these other so-called gods? Where do I fit? And, and it's, it's a declaration that he's greater than all of those things, but he needs his people to know and to see that, and they've experienced his power in the work that he did. He exposed the power in, in the land of the Gerasenes when he cast the demons out of the, the man there in the tombs. He did the same with the Syrophoenician woman. He, he Up there in Tyre and Sidon, he proclaimed, and sh- in, in word and deed, the kingdom of God come upon that place. And that's the reason in the country of the Gerasenes, they want him to leave. They're afraid because they recognize that he's greater than the gods and the demons that are in that place. So here what we get, though, is he comes to his own, and he comes to his own in in a different sort of way, right? So one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And it's on the Sabbath, and plucking heads of grain is considered work. You're having to do something to get food rather than just picking up food and eating it. You have to work to get it, to separate it from the, the husk. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, what they're doing is... Uh, not lawful on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus is comparing himself to David here. That, that is the first offense that he's going to make as far as this stuff's concerned is, is he's comparing himself to David. He will say later that he's greater than David, but here at least he's comparing himself to David, and, and they would have found this incredibly offensive. David was on the run from Saul, a demon-possessed king, who, who was after him trying to kill him. 
in all this. And David was the greatest king in Israelite history, and Jesus claims to be the messianic king in line of David, but he claims to be greater than David. Here, though, he's just making a simple claim that that he is as great as David, and they're not likely to find that compelling, let's say. And he said to them, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. In other words, I have authority over the Sabbath. So I'm not even I'm I'm not even stopping this comparison with David. I'm the Son of Man, the one that you've heard of in Ezekiel, the one that you've heard of in Daniel. That's me. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. It's amazing. These are the Sabbath police trying to make sure that Jesus doesn't do anything that's considered work on the Sabbath, and what they're not seeing is that he is God through whom all things were created. And so he is indeed Lord of the Sabbath, and here again they come to want to accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And, and, and the answer to that is, that yes, it's, it's lawful to do good. It's lawful to save life. If you have an animal that's stuck in a ditch somewhere, it's fine on the Sabbath to go rescue that animal. And so Jesus says, is it okay to do these things? But they don't even bother to answer him. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was restored. You hear this? Jesus is angry with these people because they're leaders of the people. And he's grieved at their hardness of heart that they're not recognizing him, and they don't actually care about this guy. They care about the rules of the Sabbath. So the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I mean, you couldn't find two more diametrically opposed groups of people than the Pharisees and the Herodians. You know, they ordinarily, they wouldn't have had anything to do with one another because the Herodians were those who have said, we ought to just accept Greek culture, and we ought to accept this Greco-Roman culture that's been brought here, and we ought to recognize it at some level as, as superior, as it, and it must be because, well, they're in control here. So their culture must also be superior, and also, you know what? There's money to be made. And so if you just compromise, you go along to get along, you're going to do quite well. And the Pharisees rightly said, no, that's not okay. God's the king, whether you see it that way or not. They're so desperate in their hatred of Jesus that they go out to make common cause with the Herodians in order to destroy him, because they know that they actually have access to the power, and the power, in their mind, is Rome. They're missing the real point. Jesus is coming in a demonstration of the power of God and the kingdom breaking in, and instead they're appealing this way to an earthly power that they now consider to be greater. They have bowed the knee, whether they realize it or not. When they go to make common cause with the Herodians to destroy Jesus, it's a, it's a proclamation that they believe the real power is Rome. It's a sad, sad moment. And in this Ephesians passage, Paul's wrapping up here, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. He's not bowing the knee to Rome, even though they've imprisoned him. He's not bowing the knee to official Judaism, even though they have beaten him, they have stoned him, they have killed Jesus, and it looks like they have lots of power, 
because they can they can immediately run to Rome, run to Daddy, and tell on him. And so he, he says, "I'm not. I'm bowing my knees to the Father." And the proof is I'm in prison and I'm not doing the things that are necessary to get out because I'm not bowing the knee to Rome. No, I'm going to accept this because it's on account of the gospel and I'm not going to recant even one word of that. He said, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that's his prayer. I I want you to be... Um, strengthened with power in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Why? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you would essentially know that the declaration that God made, that in his eyes they were prized and honored and loved with a love like you can't even imagine, Paul says. It surpasses knowledge. The love of God for you surpasses knowledge. It's beyond your ability to comprehend that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Greatest prayer you'll ever read. (laughs) Because it's lifting God up and praising him. It sounds like the worship of heaven. It absolutely sounds like the worship of heaven. And and he's praying that the church would do the work of glorifying him as king and Lord. And that's what we're called to do. And we're called to do it in love. And not because we loved first. No, he loved us. And our love is in response to his love. But we trust him because we know that he is the king of kings and Lord of lords. That there are no gods besides him. And therefore, nothing that he has purposed, will fail.